This day, Lord, we pray that you will open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your holy law. And in learning more of thee and more of our responsibilities, I pray that you will make us faithful by grace alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Mother's Day. Many pastors honors, honor Mother's Day by preaching from Proverbs chapter 31, the ideal woman. And most mothers immediately feel intimidated and guilty. They feel badly because they don't measure up. Pastors, often like men in general, think they're doing them a favor and only making things worse. I have a good pastor friend, he's not pastoring now, but he pastored for many years, and he said, he would say sometimes on Mother's Day, Mothers, uh, I'm not going to preach on Proverbs 31, that is my gift to you today. (laughs) So I want you to know I'm not preaching on Proverbs 31, that is my gift to you today. I thought, you know what, maybe I should preach on the bad mothers of the Bible, that will really make you feel good. And I was studying to go through Mark chapter 6, and the text that we're dealing with this week has a wonderful example, a wonderful example of a bad mom. And I thought, what about some of those bad moms of the Bible? And so we're going to take a moment to expose just a few of them, and then maybe take a look at motherhood like you've never looked at it before. So... Bad moms of the Bible. You have to watch out how you say that phrase. Bad moms of the Bible are going to be exposed. The first one is, remember Lot's wife. That's actually a verse from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17. Remember Lot's wife? Question mark. Remember Lot's wife. Command. (laughs) Um, Lot's wife... Uh, We don't know her real name, of course, it's not mentioned, but we know the story. Here Lot with his family is living in a wicked city. He was righteous, the Bible tells us, in the sense that I'm sure he was justified by faith, but he did not always act rightly. And we don't know what part his wife might have played in their decision to move into such a region like Sodom, but it greatly affected them. And when judgment was coming, God warned the righteous Lot to take him out of the place of judgment, which is a beautiful picture of how God takes the righteous out, even though they don't always deserve it. When we are saved and believers in Jesus Christ, we are saved from the wrath to come, not because of our own righteousness. And so they were warned to flee, and they did. Lot and his wife, their daughters, daughters' husbands didn't follow And on their way out of Sodom, the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 19 in verse 26 that Lot's wife looked back, and what happened to her? You know your Old Testament well. She was turned into a pillar of salt. By the way, when we take our trips to Israel, uh, we go down into that region of Sodom, and it's near the Dead Sea, and they point out the actual pillar of salt that is Lot's wife. 
And if you believe that, I've got a bridge to sell you in Manhattan. <laughs> but there is this unique uh, salt form in this salty area that kind of looks like a person if you have great imagination. But it's a reminder. Remember, Lot's wife. She was a bad mom. Feeling better yet? <laughs> she was probably, as far as we can tell, longing for those things that she loved in the city. And in disobedience, the command of God looked back with longing to what she was leaving. And so, my word to all of us is we need to remember that God's word and God's promises are serious and important. And we shouldn't love the things of this world more than the things of the next. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. The things of the earth are temporary. Do you know that? It becomes more of a reality, doesn't it, the longer you live, that the things of this world don't satisfy. Remember Lot's wife. A bad example. Let me give you another example just quickly. This is from the book of 2 Kings, chapter 11. Athaliah was a bad mom. Probably the daughter of one of the greatest kings that Judah ever produced, Omri. She married the crown prince of Judah, Jehoram. And as a mom, <clears throat> helped in his rule for eight years in Judah. By the way, in that time, the most important woman in the kingdom was not the king's wife. He had too many of those to single one out as being most important. The most important woman in the kingdom was the king's mom. And she was called, often, the queen mother. Well, the queen mother was something of a counselor, but often more of a comptroller, not just in financial areas, but in all areas. And especially when the king was a boy and younger. Her son was only 22 years old. And so she lived at the palace, but then her son, reigning only for a short period of time, was murdered. The Bible tells us that when she heard the news, Athaliah set out to destroy the rest of the royal family, and she had them executed. Now, probably, I'm guessing, other sons of hers or relatives who were next in the throne. She destroyed them probably for one of two reasons. One, if, if uh, all of the male children had been killed, it's possible she could have been killed with them. So if she somehow eliminated them and, and was still able to get to the throne, she would seek power. She would seize power. But there was one young prince who was kept from the murder. Just a babe set aside to be nursed. And when he was six years old, he was presented by the priest as the king who was saved. And they anointed him in Jerusalem. They crowned him. They saluted him with these words. Have you ever heard these before? 2 Kings chapter 11. Long live the king. Long live the king. Six years old, Athaliah heard the noise. She came in and saw what was happening, and she yelled, treason, treason. 
and they killed her. You feel better about being a good mom? But the one that comes from our text in the study of the Gospel of Mark is found in Mark chapter 6. So let's turn to Mark chapter 6, and this will really make you feel good. It's the story of Herodias, the wife of King Herod. We've been looking at the life of Jesus through the Gospel of Mark and making our way now to chapter 6. And this is where Jesus sends out the 12 in groups of two. He gave them instructions. Don't take a, a bunch of uh, items like money and an extra staff and extra clothing. You trust me and wherever you go, you can be lodged by someone who is a, a worthy person, a caring person. And Matthew chapter 10 even gives more instructions than we find in in Mark chapter 6 about the fact that they are to take these precautions and go two by two and minister the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Jesus also told them there's going to be rejection. And if a home will not welcome you and a city will not receive you, you are to shake the dust off your feet. Which is what the Jews did every time they left a Gentile nation. If they were visiting in a Gentile realm, as soon as they got into home territory, they would shake the dust off of their sandals, wipe it off, because they didn't want any of that foreign soil on their feet. It was symbolic of, I reject their ways. So Jesus said, when you travel out and share the gospel, there are going to be times of success. The Bible does tell us that they healed many drove out demons, had great success, but you will have rejection. And then the story of John the Baptist that follows is a story of great rejection. Here, John the Baptist was preaching the truth, and he's going to be beheaded for it. Let me start reading in verse 14. King Herod heard about what Jesus was doing. This is Mark 6, 14. Jesus' name had become well-known. Some people were saying, wow, he's John the Baptist raised from the dead. Others were saying, no, he's Elijah. Others said, no, he's the prophet. And these are all predictions of the, second, of the coming of the Messiah because there was going to be a messenger called the prophet who would come, and there was going to be one who would proclaim Elijah would come, they thought, back, proclaiming the coming of the Messiah, and we find out that that's exactly what John the Baptist did. He ministered in the spirit and power of Elijah. Verse 16, when Herod heard about Jesus, he said, no, nope, that's John the Baptist raised from the dead. It's interesting how paranoid people become when they don't have someone like a sovereign God to trust in and rest in. If you don't fear God, you will fear everything else, real and perceived, and your life will be a mess. So Herod gave orders to have John the Baptist arrested, bound him in prison. Now this is kind of looking back at something that had previously happened. That's why Herod thinks this is John the Baptist raised from the dead, because here's the story. He had John the Baptist arrested, put in the Macarus prison, which, by the way, is also on the Dead Sea, near the Dead Sea. It's on the eastern side, and uh, it's now in modern Jordan. I've never been there. I'm told you can go to the foundation of this prison that's in a horrible, arid place. John was arrested and bound, and the reason was 
because, verse 17, Herod did this because Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he married, was upset with John. Verse 18, John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And indeed it wasn't. Leviticus 15 makes that abundantly clear. And so Herodias, verse 19, nursed a grudge. She was bitter, angry, revengeful, and she wanted to kill John the Baptist, but she wasn't able to do so. Because even though Herod was such a wicked king, he feared John, verse 20. He protected John. He was puzzled by John. And he loved to listen to him. That's what verse 20 tells us. And isn't that like the world? When they hear the message of the truth, it puzzles them, it fascinates them, they're interested, but in the end, they reject it for things that they love more than the things of God. So finally, verse 21, an opportune time came. It was a birthday bash for Herod, and I'm sure he had had a little too much to drink. The daughter of Herodias came, and the scripture says she danced, verse 22. What you don't see in the English is that this was a sexual pantomime, the dance of a prostitute. And it pleased all who watched. It pleased the dinner guest. In a drunken stupor, Herod said, ask of me anything and I will give it to you. Up to half my kingdom. He was showing off. He was drunk, most likely. And so the dancer, the daughter, went back. Verse 24, she went out and said to her mom, Mom, what do you want? What should I ask for? And the mom said, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. I bet you feel good today, Mom. You always feel better when you compare yourself with someone that's a lot worse. What a Mother's Day gift. What would you like, flowers? No. Card? No. Vacation? No. I want the head of my enemy. Revengeful and bitter. And so when the daughter went out and told the king what she wanted, he was greatly distressed, verse 26. But because of the dinner guest and the vow he had made, he wanted to save face. And even though he feared John and protected John and enjoyed listening to him, he had the executioner come and take John the Baptist's head off. By the way, if you live righteous for Christ Jesus, it doesn't mean that things will always turn out well in this world. John the Baptist is a perfect example. This is not health and wealth and prosperity gospel. You can rip a few verses out of context and try to teach that, but you cannot take the whole Bible consistently. Here's a righteous man proclaiming the word of God, and he loses his head for it. He's imprisoned and persecuted and dies. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. And that seems to be true in this situation. So those are just a few examples, and there's many more. But now I want to look at motherhood like maybe you've never looked at it before. We've got the bad 
examples of motherhood exposed. Now I want to take true motherhood and expand its meaning. And this is something that I've thought of often on Mother's Day when we have the opportunity to honor mothers, and well, we should. But when we honor mothers, we also make it difficult for those who are not mothers but long to be. Women who cannot have children. Women who have lost their children. Women who have never married and stayed true to the Lord and have never had children. And they have said to me secretly, sometimes in emails, anonymously, Mother's Day is the worst day of the year. So don't be surprised if I don't show up in church when you hand out flowers and give books and have the mother stand and talk about the oldest one and the youngest one and the one with the many kids and the one who came the furthest. Don't be surprised if I don't attend. Well, that hit me like a ton of bricks the first time someone said that to me. So what's this idea of true motherhood expanded? Well, let me take it from two perspectives. First of all, a gos- the gospel relationship of a mother Go back to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. Gospel relationships need to have a motherly perspective. Now, this is a very interesting um, scenario in the life of Christ, very interesting incident when Jesus was preaching and his popularity was growing As we said a couple weeks ago, the people in Nazareth, the village of Nazareth, thought he was crazy, and in particular, his nuclear family, his brothers, his sisters, his mom, his dad. If you go up to verse 21 of Mark chapter 3, when his family heard about this, the big crowds, the healing, the frenzy, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He's out of his mind. I think most mothers feel that about their children at one time or another. But remember, this is a perfect son. By the way, wouldn't that be difficult? To be an imperfect mom of a perfect son? And so at some point, Mary thought, you know, he's gone too far. Now, remember everything Mary knew. She pondered them in her heart when Jesus was born. She had the angelic message. She had all this information, and she still, at times, went a little astray. Frankly, that's encouraging for me, because no matter how much of the Word of God you and I have, we still struggle with staying true. So here they are, wanting to reprogram Jesus. Let's take him back to the village of Nazareth, get him back in his hometown, maybe back in the carpenter shop, doing the handyman deeds like he used to do in the village. Let's get him back to his roots, and maybe we can help him. And so they take the journey. By the time they arrive there, verse 31, when Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, by the way, Joseph is not mentioned, they were standing outside, couldn't get in, so they sent someone uh, to give him the message. Crowd was sitting around him, verse 32, they told him, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And Jesus said something that sounds very cold. Who are my mother and my brothers? Then he looked around at those seated in the circle around him, and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will 
is part of my true spiritual family. Now, what Jesus was saying to his parents or to his family, his mom and brothers, was not necessarily cold. Perhaps there was a sense in which he was putting them in their place because of their misunderstanding of his mission. But remember at the cross when Jesus died, he said to John the apostle, take care of my mom. Loving words, last words. No, Jesus loved his mom perfectly. But what is this expanded view of motherhood? It means that in our gospel relationships with those who, what does it say in verse 35? Follow the will of God. You and I need to develop relationships with people who are a godly mother to us. Don't forget your biological mom. But if you don't have one, or they're distant from you, develop gospel relationships with godly women who can impact you like a godly mom should. Who's your godly mom? You ever thought of that? It got me thinking, who are the women, and you gotta be careful with this, because if you call someone a mom when they're not that much older than you, you might get a slap. But who do you think of as a godly woman who plays the role of a mom? By the way, all men should look at women other than their own wives and daughters as either godly moms or godly sisters. Who plays the role of a godly mom in my life? Would you honor that woman today with a card? with a call, maybe the the woman who doesn't have any biological children, but she has spent her life caring for those in need. Yesterday at the graduation at Cornerstone University in the morning, the graduation of the undergraduates, the guest speaker was Becky McDonald. She's a graduate of Cornerstone. I mean, she is the founder of Women at Risk International. She's giving her life to save women from the sex trade. And you know where the sex trade is strong? She said, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Not just there, it's Lansing too, but I mean, it's in the States. It's not just in Thailand and Bangkok, and it certainly is there, but it's here as well. And she graduated from Cornerstone, and she She doesn't have a lot of gifts, she said, although she's a fantastic dynamic speaker. just blew me away. But she said she just started. She grew up actually in the mission field. She just started loving women, the prostitutes, the women from the Red Lake District, orphans forced into prostitution. Yes, male and female children forced into this. We don't like to think about it, but that is part of our world. And I tell you, the younger generation has a better sense of justice than my generation. And they're doing something about it. They're praying, but they're also doing. And she would just love these children like a mother. She wasn't their biological mother, but she would weep with them and hug them and be with them in the middle of the night in their nightmares. That's what we need. Gospel relationships of godly women mothering others who have none play the role 
find the mentor. That's what Jesus said when he said, these are my mothers. Biologically, no. Spiritually, yes. And there was a group of women that followed Jesus around, right? Mary and the other Mary and Salome and Joanna and others following Jesus around, ministering to his needs in a very godly way. You can do that. If you've never had a child, you can do that. Motherhood has expanded. Let me expand it one other way with gospel work, and the two overlap somewhat, but turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is an Algerian text of Scripture named after a famed minister of the 20th and 21st century who, when he always preached, used 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Algerian refers to our college pastor, Neil Odgers. Whenever Neil preaches, he always goes to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Have you ever noticed that? I'm not saying that that's a bad thing necessarily, although if he were preaching every Sunday, we'd probably encourage him to do something different. But it's a great text. And he's built the college ministry after this gospel work mothering. You say, what in the world am I talking about? Well, Paul said when we went to Thessalonica, Thessaloniki, Thessalonica, we were not looking, this is verse 6, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 6, we're not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you. That is, we could have said, hey, take care of me, do this for me. But no, we were gentle among you like a what? Like a, a mother. Gentle among you like a mom caring for her little children. We loved you so much. We were delighted to share with you not just the gospel, but our lives. Now, if you jump down to verse 11, <clears throat> you'll notice that they were also like fathers. So in the gospel work, when people come to faith in Christ, they need spiritual parents. And it may not be the people who brought them to Christ, but it may be individuals who step in to do the follow-up. Do you have spiritual parents? And the father is to do the work of encouraging and comforting, verse 12. And the mother does the work of nurturing and loving, verse 8. Even to the point of, de of delighting to share your life with others. You can do that. And motherhood has expanded. It's those who do the will of God and act like spiritual mothers. It's those who do the work of God, nurturing like a mother would, not a literal baby, but a spiritual baby. And spiritual babies need what? Everything. Need to be fed. Need to be clean. We don't like to do that spiritually, but if you're going to nurture someone in the faith, you've got to, do, you've got to clean up some messes. And everything else a baby needs. They need time. They need your presence. And you need to delight in the process. Always thinking, as every mother should, in the midst of her burden and challenge, this too shall pass away. 
There'll be a time when this kid grows up and can live on his own, you hope. Gospel work. By the way, this is what God does for us. Just reading briefly from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 49, verse 15. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she is born? Rhetorical question with obvious answer. Nah, moms don't forget. Jehovah says, though she may forget, I will never forget you. Like a mother cannot forget her child, Jehovah cannot forget you. Or in Isaiah 66 and verse 13, which ends the wonderful prophecy of Isaiah, as a mother comforts her child, Jehovah says, I will comfort you and you will be comforted. Isn't that a wonderful promise? And so just some brief final thoughts about this expanded motherhood. Number one, develop relationships with godly women. Number two, nurture believers like a gentle mother. And then for all of us, honor your moms. Honor your wives. Honor all godly women. I tell you, this church would be nothing without you. And in many places in the world, it's the women who make the church go because the men are not there. So I praise you and ask that your tribe would increase and that you would enter into that role of being a godly mom to others. Exodus 20 and verse 12, honor your father and mother so that you might live long in the land, the land that the Lord God is giving you. By the way, that's repeated again in Ephesians chapter 6. Exodus 20 is repeated again in Ephesians chapter 6 and says, this is the first commandment with promise. All the other commands, no other gods, don't take the Lord's name in vain, don't make any graven image, Here's the first commandment with promise of the 10, number five, says if you honor your parents, then life can be long. For you that are mourning today, either because you don't have children, maybe you've lost your mom recently. I know that's the situation with some of you. Praise God for the wonderful relationship you enjoy. And then enter into this expanded relationship in one sense, either being the mom or being with one. Moms have an amazing influence, don't they? I sat through three graduations this week at Cornerstone. A seminary graduation, undergraduate graduation, and then the professional graduate studies graduation all day yesterday. And one of the take, takeaways was this. I love it when the kids stand up and say, I wouldn't be here without my mom. And they really mean it. Here's a story from the life of Thomas Edison. Ever heard of that guy? As a young lad, his teacher sent home with this note to his mom, your child is dumb. I can't do a thing for him. Mrs. Edison wrote back, you don't understand my boy. 
I'll teach him myself. And she did a pretty good job of it. Perhaps the teacher was dumb. <laughs> Boy, that'd been in there a long time, just waiting for me to say something bad about teachers. <clears throat> Perhaps the teacher didn't understand the level of his intellect. But the mom did. Wow. Praise God for moms. It's his design, both biological and spiritual. Let's honor them today. Heavenly Father, help us in our gospel relationships and gospel work to be thankful to you and expressive of that gratitude to those who are our moms or play that role. We praise you for this wonderful gift. In Jesus' name, amen.